I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 32nd part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that there is a divine inheritance for each one that resolves to do as Jesus says, follow the commandments of God, which is how we worship and glorify God. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. On 4th of July, our lesson for this morning is the 32nd part of our sermon series on the biblical design of gender. And the text is in Numbers chapter 27 in the first four verses. And in it, the Bible says this. Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses, before Eliezer the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in company with Korah, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. God bless the reading of his word. Let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So, Lord, give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, a takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, in our last lesson, we chronicled the plague among the Israelites, which was caused by the Moabite and Midianite women using their sexual attractiveness to seduce the Israelite men into worshiping the idol god Baal. Now let's go over the idea of idolatry. Now the major occupation in the societies which we are discussing was farming. And in an agricultural society, fertility is the most important thing that a farmer can have. 
a farmer needs fertile production from his field so that the harvest will be abundant enough to feed the farmer's family until the next harvest. The farmer needs fertile production from his livestock so that the number of animals in his flock will grow, although he kills some of the animals to feed his family. A farmer needs his wife to be fertile and produce sons for him to provide him help to take care of his land and livestock. And God has so designed life that fertility is the most important attribute. God himself says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God promised fertility to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, provided they continued to follow him. God made his promise good by giving Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fertile harvest and flocks. And in the descendants of Jacob, who was also named Israel, God gave them fertility in the production of children. <clears throat> Excuse me. From the time that God gave Israel's son Joseph the rule over Egypt until God called Moses to leave Joseph's father Jacob's descendants, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, God increased the numbers of the children of Israel from 70 to over 2 million people. So even in our generation after creation, God's primary blessing to man is the fertility required to reproduce resources while consuming them. God blessed the farmer's land with the fertility to produce a large enough crop to both feed the farmer's family and to have seed to plant to produce another crop in the following year. But Jesus says of God in the B portion of Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus tells us that not only do those who worship God receive the blessing of fertility, but that God has designed fertility as a general blessing that he bestows upon everyone, good, evil, just, or unjust. Before the plagues in Egypt, the crops of the Egyptians grew as well as did those of the Israelites. The people living in the land that God promised to Israel at the time that the Israelites were leaving Egypt enjoyed the fertility of the land even as the Israelites enjoyed the fertility of Egypt. But the people living in the Palestine did not choose to worship the God that was actually responsible for the fertility that they enjoyed. And God did not appreciate their ungratefulness. As Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 23 tells us, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made 
even God's eternal power and Godhead so that men are without excuse because although men knew God, they did not glorify God as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Now, Paul's point in this passage of Scripture is that the grace of God is shown in the fertility of his creation and is obvious to everyone who will look honestly at it. But foolish people choose to deny God in order to avoid having to worship and glorify him. Now, the most sincere expression of our worship and glorification of God is our keeping of God's commandments. But since the first time God gave man a commandment in the garden, man has disliked the concept of obedience to God. Of course, if we choose to deny the existence of God, we can then make up our own commandments, which suits us much better. This choice is the basis of idolatry, which is man's worship of himself or that which man himself has created as opposed to man worshiping God. And Exodus 32 tells us that while Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God for the Israelites, the Israelites were in the valley worshiping a golden calf that Aaron fashioned from the earrings that they had in their ears. The golden calf that Aaron made did not tell the Israelites to worship it as God told the Israelites to worship him. The one that decided that the Israelites should worship the calf was the one that created the calf, which was Aaron. And that was idolatry, man's worship of himself or that which man himself has created as opposed to man worshiping God. And we can see idolatry in our society. Several hundred years ago, a man named Charles Darwin developed the theory of evolution. Darwin theorized that life on earth was caused by a fortuitous string of accidental circumstances rather than by God's creative power. And since Genesis 1 and 1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and Genesis goes on to explain the rest of creation, Darwin's theory of evolution is an idolatrous assault on the truth of the Bible and is, and is man's worship of the evolutionary idol that man has created himself as opposed to man worshiping God. Now the summer after my son completed the sixth grade, he was given the opportunity to attend a National Science Foundation summer camp at Michigan State University. He came home after the first day and told me that the seventh grade class of which he was a member was studying the theory of evolution. Good, I replied. Let me give you some information for the class. I went to my library and pulled out a book by Dr. Dwayne Gish entitled Evolution, the Fossils Say No. Paul and I spent some time reviewing the information so that he could be ready for the next day's class and I gave him the book to take with him so that he could refer to it in the discussion. When Paul came home that day, he handed me the book. 
Dad, Paul said, after the teacher started talking, he saw me pull out your book. He asked me if he could see what I was reading, and I showed it to him. Then they decided to put me in the eighth grade class, so now I'm not studying evolution. Of course, I replied, they don't want to look like fools in their own class. Now, the purpose of the Exodus and the reason that God delivered the Israelites from, from the Egyptians was to give the children of Israel the possession of the geographical area that we currently call the Palestine, which called, God called the promised land because he promised Abraham that his descendants would live there. God is giving Israel possession of the promised land and dispossessing the seven nations that live there because those nations worship idols. And God does not want the Israelites to become idolaters. Moses explained to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, which says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Now, God commanded the Israelites to destroy the idolaters living in the promised land because the worship of idol gods is so seductive. Why? Since idolatry is man-made and idolatry has no real substance or power, and obviously idolatry has nothing to do with the actual worship of a, a divine supreme being, men that develop idolatry have to make idolatrous rituals as attractive as possible to get other men to participate. Those that developed idolatry made sexual intercourse with a ritual prostitute part of their worship teaching that the joining of the man and the prostitute represented the joining of the man with the idol God purported to be creating fertility on the man's farm. Now, God is actually the author of fertility, but since fertility is a general blessing that God gives to both the good and the evil, the evil can credit any God they wish with the ability to grant fertility without fear of contradiction. Now, God tells us in Exodus 20 and 14, you shall not commit adultery. And since Satan originated the idea of idolatry and transmitted it to man, Satan also incited man to disregard God's commandment, ignoring God's prohibition against adultery and making adultery an integral part of man's worship of himself. And as I said earlier, if we choose to deny the existence of God, we can make up our own commandments, which suits us much better. But although we like to make up commandments, God prohibits us from doing so, which is why God prohibited Israel from coexisting with idolaters. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2 through 5, which says, And when the Lord your God delivers the idolaters in the promised land over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. 
you shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your, for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. So God destroyed the land of Egypt and brought the children of Israel out from there and then sent Israel into the promised land to destroy the idols of those that lived there and those that worshiped them to make the land a sanctuary for the worship of God. And this should give us some idea of how God feels about the worship of idol gods. Now, in preparation for the war required to remove the seven nations from the land, Numbers 26, 1 and 2 tells us, and it came to pass after the plague that killed the 24,000, that the Lord spoke to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and above by their father's houses, all who are able to go to war in Israel. And God wanted Moses to know the size of the available Israelite fighting force. The results of the census and God's further instructions are given in Numbers chapter 21, verse 51 through 56. And it says, these are those who were numbered of the children of Israel. 601,730. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, to these, the land shall be divided as an inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe, you shall give a larger inheritance. And to a small tribe, you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot. They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. So God decreed that the promised land was to be divided and to give a farm to each of the 601,730 Israelite warriors to live with their families. But one particular set of Israelites took exception to God's pronouncement. Our text, Numbers 27, 1 through 4, tells us, Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hepner, the son of Gilead, the son of Macher, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughter, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in company with Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family, because he had no sons. Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So five women came to Moses asking for a possession in the land, since their deceased father was a loyal worshiper and not an idolater. Now, 
Moses could have given them two reasons. First, God commanded Moses to give inheritance to those able to go to war. Being women, they were ineligible to serve in the Israelite army. God is giving the land to those that can perform the warrior function in order to eradicate idolatry in the land. A man that has served as a warrior would be less likely to become an idolater since he shed the blood of idolaters in order to receive his inheritance. Second, a woman could not be the head of her household. To have a household, she would have to accept a proposal of marriage and would become her husband's helper, no longer part of her father's family. And if a woman did not accept a proposal of marriage, she could not legitimately have a family of which she could be the head. There were scriptural inheritance provisions for the care of widows to be taken over by their husband's family, but there were no scriptural provisions to provide an inheritance for orphaned women that remained unmarried by choice. Women really had no individual rights in the Israelite society, but existed as a function of either a father-daughter or a wife-widow relationship. But although Moses had two legitimate reasons to reject the request of Zelophehad's daughters, Moses, being an humble man, decided not to presume as to that which God would want, but rather inquired of God so that God could speak for himself. Numbers 27, 5 through 11 records, So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of, Le of Zehoflahad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers, and cause the inheritance of their fathers to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, while the inheritance was designed for warriors, God recognized that the holy women that respected his word were as likely to continue their worship of him as were the men that fought on their behalf. And God also recognized that whether or not a woman had a family, she would require sustenance in the promised land. And if she had neither father nor land, she would have no place to benefit from the agricultural fertility of the, hand, of the land. The Hovlehad's daughters asserted their independence from their father's brothers, becoming the first women in the Bible that God respected for asserting their independence. Psalm 68, 5 and 6 tells us, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. But the major division of Israel was not by individual families. Each inheritance that an individual family received in the land 
was a portion of the land that belonged to the tribe of their forefathers. Zehoflahad was part of the tribe of Manasseh, and his daughters were to receive land within the inheritance of Manasseh. And having an independent female landowner in the land confused this situation. As Numbers 36, 1 through 4 records, Now the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Mecca, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the chief fathers of the children of Israel. And they said, The Lord has commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. Now, if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, and it will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken from the lot of our inheritance. Now the problem of Zehoplahad's daughter is similar to the problem that we currently have with illegal immigration, that being the desire of Mexicans to reclaim the land of the American Southwest that Mexico lost during the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848. And there's currently a town in California that has a population of Mexican-American citizen and illegal Mexican immigrants. The town government has voted to become a sanctuary city for illegal immigration, one in which the immigration laws of the United States will not be enforced. The town is, in effect, a Mexican city in the United States of America, and the residents of the town, for the most part, do not see themselves as citizens of the U.S., of Aslan, descended from the Aztecs. Now, such situations develop because of the citizens of one country occupying the territory of another. And Zehoplahad's daughters are by birth part of the tribe of Manasseh, and the inheritance that they received was in an area of the promised land that was part of the land of the tribe of Manasseh. If, however, one of Zehoplahad's daughters decided to marry a man, say, from the tribe of Asher, upon her death, her property would pass to her husband and children, and her land would become that of the tribe of Asher. Thus, the land of the tribe of Asher would be increased, and the land of the tribe of Manasseh would be decreased. So God developed a solution to keep the inheritance of women in one tribe from being inherited by another by marriage. Numbers 36, 5 through 9 tells us, Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, what the tribe of the sons of Joseph speaks is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zehoplahad, saying, Let them marry whom they think best, but they, may omit, but they may marry only within the family of their father's tribe. So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe, so that the children of Israel each may possess the inheritance of their fathers. Thus no inheritance shall change hands rather, from one tribe to another, 
but every tribe of the children of Israel shall keep its own inheritance. Thus, Zehoflahad's daughters were eligible to receive an inheritance, but should they do so, they had to marry within their own tribe so that the land would not change hands from tribe to tribe. And the independence of Zehoflahad's daughters is circumscribed by marriage. As long as they chose not to marry, they could maintain their independence. And interestingly, in the New Testament parallel, God does not make women subordinate to men, but wives subordinate to husbands. As Ephesians 5, 22 and 23 describes, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Both men and women can maintain their independence as long as they decide not to marry. But Genesis 2.18 tells us, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And there are two ordinances in the New Testament church, both of which bind us to someone. The first is marriage, which makes us one with our spouse, and the second is the combination of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which makes us one with Jesus Christ. God desires that we be one both with one another and with his son. And so he links the two ordinances together in the passage of scripture that we have just read, making marriage analogous to salvation. And in God's economy, independence is analogous to immaturity. As we are born into independence and rebellion, and only as we mature do we learn and develop interdependence and cooperation. Self-centeredness is a function of immaturity, but the epitome of maturity is the Christ who chose to suffer for the good of those whom he came to save. The Christ did not want to suffer, nor did he enjoy his suffering, but he chose to suffer that the will of God might be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And because Jesus chose to suffer the painful agony of the cross, which was the will of God for his life, Jesus saved us and became one with the Father that wanted us to be saved by doing his will. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. And why can we hear Jesus' voice? And why can we not be snatched from him? Because he gave his life for us on Calvary and in the process, process became one with God. And God tells us in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
And there is a divine inheritance for each one that resolves to do as Jesus says and follow the commandments of God, which is how we worship and glorify God. Those in the wor world that do not know the Lord will offer us alternatives based upon their own imaginations and the prompting of the devil. But our allegiance to God is shown through our decision to follow the commandments of God even as those in the word endeavor to make us suffer for doing so. God sent Jesus to suffer on Calvary, and he sends us to suffer in the world. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 1 through 4, These things that I have I spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And, they, and these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. So there are trials and tribulations for those of us that take on the mantle of God in the world and rejection for those that work to spread the gospel. But then Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So there is a reward for faithfulness. There is, a reward, there is no reward for independence, but there is a reward for faithfulness. Human death is inevitable for us all, but there is a second death in hell and we can avoid it by being a believer and follower of the witness and will of Christ. Yes, we live in a day in which the idolatry of evolution is preached and the devil will make sure that we are ridiculed for standing with the Lord. But Jesus says that there is a crown of life for those who withstand, even as he withstood on Calvary and are faithful unto death. There is an inheritance for us in the promised land. So let us prepare for the battle that will allow us to receive us, receive it rather, recognize that the Lord is with us in the battle and let us be faithful to reject the word of the world and follow the Lord's commandments until death that we may receive the crown of life. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson. We thank you for the inheritance that you have stored up for us in your kingdom. And we would ask you for strength as we live in this sin-sick world, in this evil and licentious society, and that you would help us to stay pure and unspotted from the world. Give us the intestinal fortitude and the strength that you had on the cross, even as you suffered the spitting, the beating, the mocking, the crown of thorns, the nails in the hands and the feet, and that three-hour period when the sun didn't shine as God poured down all of his wrath against sin on you. Give us the power, Lord, to withstand the evil of the devil in this environment 
that we might be as lights for you and that we might be able to carry your word everywhere we go that some man, woman, boy, or girl might be affected by our life and come crying, what must I do to be saved? And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.